0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tim's five year host, and we are now in week six or so of camp quarantine. I hope everybody out there is doing well. Uh, I continue to pray for our nation and for the health of all involved and anybody who might be suffering right now from job loss or anything. And I hope that you'll join me in that. This is going to go down as one of the more unique times, certainly in my life, my 44 years, and probably uh, when my days are over, it will we'll probably still be the case. But I I do think that this is a time of extraordinary opportunity, and I want to use it as an opportunity to do some reflection today on three different things. And uh, the first will be uh, a reading from a book by my colleague and friend, Ron Highfield at Pepperdine University. He's a theologian on uh, some things politicians cannot do. Uh, then we're going to do a couple of blog posts uh, of mine from the past, one on the importance of the language that we use in church and then one on the benefit of actually being together since th- this is one of those times where maybe we're realizing more than ever before how wonderful it is and how important it is that we are able to spend time together but i want to start with this from ron highfield it's a book called a course in christianity for an unchurched church uh, ron is a good friend i have actually invited him to new venice church to join me on the stage on weekends and have interviewed him He and his wife, Marty, are just outstanding people, and this book I recommend highly. He has a blog, which you can find at ifaqtheology.wordpress.com. That has a lot of uh, brief reflections on theology and everyday life, and I can't recommend it more highly. It's outstanding. So let me begin with some words uh, from Ron Highfield from a chapter in a course on Christianity for an unchurched church. The title of the chapter, very brief, is called Some Things Politicians Cannot Do. So here we go, Ron Highfield. For people who place their trust in politicians, it is always a season of high hopes and deep despair, of utopian dreams and dystopian fears. In this chapter, I want to urge us to remember that there is only one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only one who rules by divine right and the only one who can save us from our deepest problems. So I want to speak about the limits of politics, not the limits of a particular party or political philosophy, but the limits of any possible political order. In this chapter, I will not be advocating for any party, philosophy, or individual. I simply want to ask Christian people to take their confession seriously. Jesus is Lord and Savior, Jesus alone, People look to the political dimension of society to provide order, justice, and prosperity. We can imagine having order without justice, or a just order without prosperity, but we want all three. Hence, politicians defend their leadership abilities, theories, and policies as the best means to the optimum balance between these three values. Hardly anyone expects politicians of any party to create perfect order, justice, and prosperity, or even the ideal balance among them. Most people know they must settle for what they believe is the best of those imperfect systems. But let's assume that a utopian state is possible and that your favorite politicians can bring that state into being. Your society is efficiently ordered and peace dominates. Everyone is treated fairly and prosperity extends to all levels of society. What then? Can the president forgive your sins? Can your senator raise you from the dead? Can the Congress decree that you will inherit eternal life? Politicians cannot create the world or make sure that everything happens to you, works out for your eternal good. No state can guarantee your dignity or assure that you exist for a reason. The government cannot make sure that you are loved and have the courage to love in return. No politician can give your life ultimate meaning or give you true and lasting happiness. Jesus Christ is Lord and savior. There is no other. Now let us assume, on the other hand, that your worst political nightmare comes true. The worst people and the worst party come to power. Your dystopian fears become reality. Injustice reigns. Order serves the interest of only a few and prosperity eludes the majority. Perhaps dissenters and critics of the new order are persecuted. Well, what then? Can the president make you unhappy? Can poverty erase the image of God in which you are made? Can being treated unjustly make you unjust? The state cannot keep you from loving your enemies and your friends. The Senate can't rob you of God's love, nor can Congress withhold divine forgiveness or invoke divine judgment. Can politicians prevent God from working all things to our eternal good? Can death or persecution separate us from the love of God? Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. There is no other. Hence, let us have a sense of proportion in seasons of political debate and decision. The best outcome cannot bring salvation to your house, and the worst cannot assign you to perdition. Let us not seek for from ourselves what only God can provide. Instead, let us treat politics as what it is. It is a means of maximizing certain worldly goods, worldly goods, not heavenly treasures, There is nothing sinful about wishing to enjoy and use worldly goods unless we begin to love and worship them and lose perspective on their true value. Putting too much stock in politics may indicate that we've lost hope in the real savior and have given up trusting in the true Lord, or it may indicate that we have grown to love the world. John gives us a warning apropos to our time. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life come not from the Father, but from the world. That's 1 John 2, 15 and 16. And Jesus, our true Lord and Savior, reminds us of the one we should fear. This is from Luke 12, four to five. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And to that I say amen and remind us that there are things that cannot be taken away by politicians, and there are certain things that they can never give us, that only Jesus can provide those things to us. In that stream, I wrote something. Uh, This comes from 2013, and it was a post entitled, What Do You Actually Say When You're Preaching? At the time, I was addressing primarily ministry uh, leaders and preachers at the time, but I think it applies to a whole bunch of different things. You could create such a word picture out of your own life. If somebody were to make a word cloud out of your language, what would it look like, for instance? But let me read this to you. I did it in the context of preaching, and so this can go out to preachers and uh, Christians alike. The language we use in church really matters. The language we use in our preaching matters especially. Last Sunday, I was on the way to our customary Sunday afternoon after church fast food experience and my 13-year-old daughter, my daughter's 17 now, she was 13 at the time, my 13-year-old daughter Anna said, Dad, today was a really good sermon. I paid a lot more attention today than most times, no offense, none taken. Then she began to tell me how my mom, who had stayed with the kids while Emily and I were attending a pastor's conference, had given them a couple of notebooks in which to take sermon notes. They were themed and formatted for the task. I thought to myself, what a great idea. And then she said it. I counted the number of times you said Jesus. Cool. Why'd you do that? Because in the book, it lists a bunch of words and you had to count the number of times you said each one of them. Hmm, I thought. Do I really want to ask this? Yeah, I think I do. Okay, hon, what words were listed and how many times did I say them? Now, pause here. The magic of this little exercise was that when I did it, I had no idea I was being watched when I did it. But it's also a helpful way to tell what I actually say by forming a heat map or a word cloud of the language I actually used, not just what I was quote unquote trying to say. I happened to be preaching that day a sermon on the healing of the paralytic by the pool of Bethsaida. Here were the top four word uses from that sermon Uh, Jesus Christ or Son of God was used 83 times. Jesus was used 63 out of the 83 times. Spirit, 18 times. Power, 13 times. Eight, paralytic or paralyzed. Whew, I actually felt kind of relieved. I had someone check what I actually said, and I felt like I honored God and the text with the language I used. That little pop quiz helped me a lot. I'm going to have someone tallying language for a while, if for no other reason that will hold me accountable for the language I use. It's also helpful for me as a preacher to know what words I'm actually using as opposed to what I hope to use. What about yours, fellow preachers? What language comprises the precious real estate of your sermons these days? Would election, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, appear more than Jesus? How about justice or growth? Would kingdom appear more than any reference to the king? Admittedly, this is a somewhat blunt instrument to use, but it is an instrument to use in analyzing what we actually say when we preach, not what we intend to say. It's a blunt instrument, but an instrument nonetheless in holding ourselves accountable for the language we use. So here's another question. If someone did that exercise on our preaching during times of frustration with the church or depression or pridefulness, would it stay the same? Or would the sermon have more me, I, or such language in it? I don't know. my 13-year-old daughter gave me a great gift without meaning to. She reminded me to pay attention to the language I use. Does it lift up Jesus? Does it imitate his language? Does it communicate the highest ideals and emphases of the kingdom? So. Who's counting for you this weekend? Make a list of 15 or so words and have them count. Don't get too weird with this, forcing in odd words for no reason. Just be aware that what we say matters to God and to those 13, 25, 50, and 80-year-olds who glean understanding of the scriptures from our sermons. Here is a beautiful and humbling truth. Your preaching matters. So that's for all preachers out there, moms, dads, all of us. Uh, We need to pay attention to the language we use, and one of the interesting things would be to see if there was a word cloud or an infographic or something that would see how often we use certain words uh, throughout the day, but it certainly applies in our preaching. Similarly, and as we conclude the podcast today, we're going to do so with a blog post uh, called Never Eat Alone. It was based on a book I read by a guy named Keith Ferrazzi. And I just, it was one of those that was on the bestseller list for a long period of time. And every now and then I like to grab business books or books like it and uh, be able to just be conversant in what's going on and glean some new ideas. So what I realized was many of the principles that he espoused in the books, I as an extrovert were doing, I was already doing it anyway. And it helped me put a framework or words around things that I already understood, but couldn't quite explain to others what I meant. So I want to read this to you, and whether you're a pastor or a business leader or mom, dad, whomever, uh, this is just about simply the glory of lunchtime and how that can be used for, uh, for good. So with that in mind, here we go. Meal times are some of the most valuable and underutilized times in a pastor's schedule. I think I sensed that intrinsically, but Keith Ferrazzi helped me understand its full importance in a book entitled Never Eat Alone and I would recommend it highly. He's obviously coming at it from a corporate and networking standpoint. However, his value for people comes through. For pastors, the book is easily adapted to the realm of ministry. I eat alone sometimes, but not often. Those six hours a week, one and a half hours, four days a week, are too valuable to spend alone. It's not that I don't like being by myself. In fact, there are times I kind of love it but I am an extrovert who enjoys being around people and I found I can get more pastoring done during lunch times than I can on a Sunday. There's something about sharing a meal together that opens the door for good conversation and I can't tell you how much simply eating breakfast or lunch with somebody has blessed our church over the years. Some of the deepest partnerships and best ideas have come out of those very simple gatherings. It's not about networking, quote unquote, though there's nothing wrong with networking, it's simply about enjoying people. These kinds of people. And then I give six different types of people that I meet with traditionally. So we'll give you the six. Number one, staff members. Our staff team eats together usually every Monday. I also try to spend some one-on-one time with each staff person once a month. For those of you with larger church staffs, this is obviously not scalable. So just use common sense. Ditto this for your elders if you have them. It's well worth the energy to spend time here. Number two, members of the church. I try to schedule at least one of these per week and maybe there's something we need to discuss more than anything. It's just trying to bless people with genuine care and fellowship over a meal. People are so much more open between the Sundays. It's a great time. Sometimes people will ask me. Most of the time I try to ask them. Number three, people who are new to the church or guests of the church. I absolutely love these. What a great opportunity to talk about the church, answer any questions they have, and offer them a blessing. Number four, an area pastor. It might be somebody I just wanna get to know, or it might be for the purpose of mentoring or building bridges for our church. This may set the table for some partnership in the gospel, but usually it's just hearing what God is doing in other parts of our community. Number five, my wife. Every now and then, I love to just enjoy eating with my wife, Emily. There is nothing wrong with strengthening your bond with your spouse, ever. Number six, a community leader. Sometimes it's great to have lunch with community leaders, those running 501c3, city workers, your banker, etc. Here, we might be networking, but that shouldn't preclude simply enjoying getting to know somebody as a person. I have basically 16 lunch slots a month. I usually spend two or so by myself running errands, etc. I keep a list in Nosby, my task manager of choice, with the names of people I would like to have lunch with or call on the phone. As of this morning, there are more than 60 names on that list. I even keep notes about what they I would like to talk about and attach relevant stuff, their family information, any relevant emails. It's all on my phone. Some of these names are set to recur every so often. My best lunch slots, though, are reserved for staff and MVC members and guests. Right now, some introverts are feeling drained even reading this post. But let me suggest you try it anyway. Start small, say with one a week or two a week. And if you don't pull a muscle doing that, increase it. The bigger point is to use our time wisely, setting the table for God to grow us and others through relationship. So I rarely eat alone and it blesses me, blesses our church and keeps me firmly rooted in an awareness that ministry is about people. It's always about people. It's also more, quote unquote, productive because I'm not just blowing the lunch hours. If you're an elder or a senior minister, encourage people to do this. Eat together, eat with others, but rarely eat alone. Upcoming on the podcast, we're going to have a new pastor on the NBC staff, Marcus Preciado, join us. We're also going to have the aforementioned theologian, Ron Highfield, as a guest here on the podcast. And we'll start divvying this up a little bit more, and there'll be some more back and forth going on in the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Please keep me my family, NBC. In your prayers. And also make sure that if you don't have a church home and you'd like to join us online, I hope you'll do that. You can find us at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., or 6 p.m. online on Facebook Live, YouTube, Twitter, or Periscope. Or you can go to newvintagesd.org and uh, we stream live from the website directly as well. May God bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. God bless.